0: You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor, Gare Jones. We are in a series looking at the three enemies of the soul. The three enemies to your walk with Jesus. When you follow Jesus, it's not all easygoing. Have you noticed that? There are actually three enemies to your walk with Jesus. Jesus talks about them, and throughout the New Testament, we hear again and again that there are oppositions, there are headwinds to you following Jesus. Jesus warns us that we have to understand the nature of these enemies. We have to understand how they work. Otherwise, we'll be susceptible to them, and we will give in to them. The three enemies of the soul. In the companion book that we are all reading together as we're going through this series, a book by a friend of ours called John Mark Comer, Live No Lies, he examines these three enemies of the soul in a deeper way. We want to encourage you to read that book. But he says in that book, John Mark says this, our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. Here's my working theory. As followers of Jesus, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three enemies stratagem is as follows. And he has this very helpful little diagram where he talks about the devil comes, the enemy comes with deceptive ideas. Which are tempting to us because we kind of already want them to be true. We have disordered desires. And then it's easy to give in to them because it's just the popular thing to do. It's the way of the world. Deceptive ideas land on disordered desires that are normalized in a broken society. We've been looking so far in this series at what is this thing called the devil and what is this thing called the flesh, and this morning we're looking at the third enemy of the soul, which is the world. The world. What on earth does Jesus mean and Paul mean when they write in the New Testament? What do they mean by the world? So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 12, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Rome. And he said this, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul uses this phrase, this word, the world, which is repeated by Jesus and other New Testament writers in a similar kind of way, do not be conformed to the world. The Greek word here is simply cosmos. And it can be used in the New Testament uh, writings in a very positive way, meaning just the cosmos, the, the physical world, the beauty of God's creation. But it can also be used with warnings attached to it, in a way that Jesus says, beware of the world. And in those situations, what Jesus and Paul is referring to in this passage is the world which is best described as the patterns, the ideas, and the practices of a culture that are opposed to the way of Jesus. The patterns, the ideas, the practices that are opposed to the way of Jesus. Of Jesus, You see, every culture or world has its own vibe, right? Has its own ideas, has its own practices, has its own way of doing things. And we live in one of those cultures, L.A., which has its own way of doing things. It's like when you go back to your home in Wichita or wherever it is, people will say, oh, my word, you are so L.A. You are so L.A. And I actually looked at this week of what does it mean to be so L.A. Apparently, according to an article I read, so L.A. is its particular ideas. It's things like we speak Zen to one another. Like, my heart is so full and all the love and things like that. (laughs) Secondly, we're laid back and super chilled. We juice. We believe rain is a catastrophe. If we're not stuck in traffic, we're talking about traffic. We work out all day, soul cycle in the morning, hot yoga in the afternoon, orange theory at night. We never commit to anything, we don't walk anywhere, and we all have a script in our back pocket. You know, that is, that is so LA. But there's lots of good things there, right? That is the pattern of LA, there's lots of good things. But Paul is referring to the toxic things of a culture that become just the way things are done that are against the way of Jesus. When actually the city starts to act in a way where the majority acts in a certain way, when just the way things are become a headwind of the way you want to be as you follow Jesus. And in fact, this is how these three enemies of the soul work, the devil comes And with an idea that is not an idea of Jesus. And it lands on a disordered desire. It's like, ooh, that sounds good. And the problem is, it not only sounds good, but it's the popular thing to do. I will fit in if I do that. In fact, I'm encouraged to do that. In fact, that is just the way our city is. These are the enemies of the world. Not the good things of the world, but the ways that the world, the the popular ways of doing things put us into a minority where we tend to give in and conform. You know, there are things that you know, like consumerism, materialism, selfishness, fluid morality, self-defined truth, etc., etc. And most of these things, if you look back, and we looked at this last year a bit, most of this world, most of this culture that's opposed to the way of Jesus began in what Charles Taylor calls this move to secularism. In his amazing book, The Secular Age, he talks about our culture, of which Westside LA is at the forefront, of defining reality for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, defining re- Defining reality without any view to external sources. Whether it be God, whether it be tradition, whether it be church, whether it be family, whether it be political history. That we have untethered ourselves from any sense of external objectivity. And we are now moving forward in defining culture purely according to our own true north, which is our feelings our feelings. The autonomous self, as Charles Taylor puts it, has become the God of our culture. Yuval Noah Harari, who's a popular historian and atheist, sums it up quite well in his book. He says this, he says, in earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, those answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also to our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it and think for yourself. These are some of the main humanist credos. And of course, what we see in this... Separation from any objectivity and purely living into a subjective expression of our feelings is utter chaos at times. Because authentic feelings, don't we know, they well, they're authentic, but they change every day. They lead us in different directions. We disagree with one another on what are authentic feelings. And we've lost our sense of direction. And we find ourselves... Astray. And so we find ourselves in a culture that is expressing the authentic feelings of this particular age, and we find that as followers of Jesus, we are in the minority to now the majority way of seeing things. John Mark Homer, in his book, summarizes some of these ways of thinking that are now popular but opposed to Jesus. He writes this, lust is redefined as love. Marriage not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal fulfillment. Divorce as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. The objectification of women's sexuality through porn is somehow female empowerment. Greed as responsibility to shareholders. Gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world as globalism. Environmental degradation as progress. Racism as a past issue. Marxism as justice. Sex as casual adult play, rather than a sacred covenant renewal ceremony for marriage. Abortion as reproductive justice. And commitment as a repressive concept Denying authentic and changing feelings. Does this ring true of our world? And we can suddenly start to conform. We can suddenly start to confuse and lose our kind of north star in the midst of it. And we find that we're being squeezed into its pattern. This is, in fact, what Paul is writing again in Romans 12. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. And, in fact, another translation by a guy called J.B. Phillips, who put it more in street language in English, says, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. It's so tempting, isn't it, when you're the odd one out. When everything looks okay, what's wrong with this? Or what's wrong with that? Suddenly to lose our anchor in Jesus and start to put our anchor into the majority. It's what is called the herd mentality. See, we're hardwired for community which makes us very susceptible to the herd mentality which is simply this, we all want to belong. That's the God-given design of each one of us and that has beautiful consequences of interdependence, of encouragement and support but in the broken society it can also mean that we fall prey to following the crowd fitting in with the majority even sometimes when we know it's wrong the majority is easy fitting in is the temptation but we know don't we that if anything of church history or just secular history tells us the crowd is not always right the majority don't always know the way to human flourishing we at this moment in time as followers of Jesus we are living as minority spiritual community in a majority world that thinks differently to Jesus. Now, that may be new for some. It's the world which my wife and I grew up in and we're well used to. I think both of us have only experienced living in a majority for three years when we lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. The rest of our lives, we've been that odd minority. I grew up in a town in the north of England where from K through 12th grade, I didn't know any Christians in school. I went to university. Out of the tens of thousands of college students, I knew maybe five Christians. When I went to work in the law firm, I met one. And I remember going, I remember going to my workplace in Switzerland, we got married and we moved to Switzerland and I started a new job in a new company. And again, I didn't know any, any Christians. I remember, man, this, living in the minority once again, as a Jesus follower. And what's that gonna mean? And how are we gonna work that out? And the tensions of, et cetera. I remember sitting at my cubicle. Massive open floor environment, open floor plan. Hundreds of people from all across Europe were all at the headquarters of this office in Switzerland. I remember working away one day and this, suddenly this, this tap on my desk came from behind me. I kind of turned around. I went, hello? And this man I'd never seen before, leant over and said, I hear you are one of us. (laughs) And I go, "Um, I'm sorry? He goes, I hear you are one of us. You worship the king, yeah? (laughs) And and I go, oh, I'm a, I'm a, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And he leans even closer and goes, we are not alone. (laughs) I go, what? And he goes, look, I looked up over the cubicle, and over the other side of the room, a little head pops up. And so the resistance began. (laughs) But for many of us, that's what it's like. We're now living as a minority in a world that is very different. Different in its ideologies, different in its ethics, different in what it desires, what it thinks the good life is to the ways of Jesus. And so the question we have, the question as Jesus wants to look at, it, is it beware of the world. How do we stay faithful to Jesus? Stay faithful to who we are, when the world is trying to squeeze you, squeeze you away into its own mold. We have the same temptations, don't we, in LA? And I want to encourage us today. This is how we thrive as a minority. The spiritual minority. This is how we thrive and stay faithful to Jesus. How we refuse to be conformed by the world. The first thing is this. Remind yourself that Jesus is the true north of life. Not a true north. But there's only one true north. And it's Jesus. Be convinced That it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're looking for the true north of life, if you're looking for how life is supposed to work, if you're looking for how to make the most out of life, if you're looking for the good life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. We all know, you all know there's a God out there somewhere, and you're all kind of scratching around with blindfolds on. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I want to tell you, I am who you're looking for. I am the way the truth, and the life. It's so easy when you're in the minority to start going, well, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that, or maybe this. And in my journey in doing Alpha, I'm on my 39th Alpha, on my 39th Alpha course. I'm reminded every time, oh my word, God is so loving that he has come to reveal himself to us in Jesus Christ we do not have to guess any longer. And when the confusions and in the temptations and the difficulties of saying no to the popular things if they're not the ways of Jesus, we have to remind ourselves, no, Jesus is the true north. Even though I may be the only one, man, I'm convinced that Jesus is the true north. There's this amazing passage in Matthew's Gospel, or John's gospel, where Jesus is he's pr- he's delivering some pretty tough teaching. It's pretty hard. You know, it's very different to the culture around him. And some of the people leave, go, you know what? Too difficult, Jesus. And it says this from verses, verse 66 of chapter 6 of John's gospel, it says this, From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and said, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to believe and to know that you truly are the Holy One of God. So living as a minority will truly test what you really believe about who God is, about who we are, and what is the way to the good life. And for Peter, he looked at people turning away, and he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, i got loads of questions. Sometimes you do my head in, and I don't understand what on earth you're talking about, but I do know this. I'm convinced you're the real deal, that you are God. And where else do I go? This is my own journey. I was raised in the church, raised as a Christian, but then some bad stuff went down in church, a lot of it my own fault. And I left. And part of leaving, when I was in London, part of leaving was actually going, hang on a minute, all my mates seem to be having a brilliant time. (laughs) And none of them are Christians. I always thought Jesus was like the person who filled the gap and loved, joy peace and everyone else is miserable no they're having a brilliant time so I'm gonna I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna test this little theory that Jesus has that I'm the way to abundant life so I'm a lawyer in London earning way more than I should have been and I had a lot of money to spend and so I thought I'm gonna live it up I'm gonna do all these things that people are doing that's bringing all this joy and happiness and fulfillment. And because I'm a data-driven guy, I thought every day I'd collect some of my own data on this little thing and open, create a little spreadsheet in my, on, on my wall, and at the end of every day would rate, how much joy do I have today out of 10? You know, 10 mega, zero, I'm depressed. And I tell you, I know I'm a nerd, don't worry, but I, Every day, for the first few weeks or months, it was like epic, epic, elevens, twelves, <laughs> right? And then something called the law of diminishing returns set in. It's like, hmm, man, I'm just, I've just got a headache. Oh, that was a bit boring. Oh, man, it's the same thing all over again. Oh. That excitement's gone. I remember the numbers being remarkably declining and then thinking, this is pretty superficial. This is pretty empty. It's like, I wish someone had told me that I could stuff my life with all of these things but still be hungry. And for years, I was so afraid of church and didn't like church that I wouldn't go back there, but I was walking around London going, but this is not the good life either. And eventually I went back, and that's a different story, but I went back and I found, and I felt like Peter going, man, I still got lots of questions, I've still got lots of stuff I don't understand, and actually that really hurt me, your church is supposed to be a great place, but where else can I go? For only you have the words of eternal life, and I'm convinced that you are God. See, part of God bringing you to this city is for him to challenge you and test you in your faith, that you drop anchor and go, you know what? No, no, no. That may be the popular thing. I just know better. I just know better. That that will lead to emptiness. That does not lead to human flourishing. I know better because I've met Jesus. Jesus. Remind yourself that he is the true north. Secondly, remind yourself that it matters how you live. It matters how you live. See, it's interesting that we're living in an age where the Christian gospel, in an attempt to get it out as quickly as we can to as many people as we can. We've we reduced it so much that you could say in a little sentence, but the problem is we have oversimplified it that people get the wrong idea of what it means to follow Jesus. For many, a generation has been taught Jesus came with this message, believe in me and you'll go to heaven. Believe in me and you'll go to heaven. Like I've forgiven you on the cross all the sins, now you can just go to heaven. And so we're left with this ticket to heaven and like, well, I can just live any way I want then. Jesus doesn't really care about how I live. I don't have to stand up to the majority. I don't have to kind of do the hard stuff of Jesus. I, why would I want to do that? And it doesn't matter because we all get to the pearly gates and Jesus goes, hey, you believed in me, come on in." The problem with that is there's, there's like a whiff of truth, a little sense of truth, but a lot of incompleteness, because it does matter how you live according to Jesus, because actually it goes right to the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus never said, you are a Christian if you believe in me. And I think that may be a tough word, but I think it's a really loving word because I want you to really know what it means to follow Jesus. James kind of crushes that argument even more because James in his letter says, it's not just belief because even the demons believe in Jesus. They may have a better orthodoxy and a view of doctrine of Jesus than you do. And Jesus never said, hey, believe. He said, repent and believe. Believe in who I am, but if you believe in who I am, that has consequences, it's called repentance, which simply means turning around. Turning around from what? Well, turning around from how we got into this mess in the first place in Genesis one through three, where Adam and Eve and every single one of us decides to reject God and define ourselves as God. I'm in charge. I get to to define what is wrong and right. I get to to define who I, and what I, and everything I do. I don't need God. And that's what created the problems in the world. That's what the mess is all about. We are like six-year-olds driving a car. It doesn't go well. Because we were never meant to drive the car. Jesus is the king, and his plan of salvation is not just to forgive us all that we have done, which is true, but he comes to fix the problem by coming back as God and saying, you have to choose to come back under my rule. That's what it means To come back into who you were created to be is come back under my rule. So to follow Jesus literally is, I'm not going to do my own thing anymore. I'm going to do the things of Jesus. I'm going to do them, not as a way to get in, because he forgives us and accepts us the way we are. But it's what it means to follow him. It's to start going, I'm going to live your way. Because you're God and I'm not. That's what it means to come under the authority and the rule of a good, amazing king called Jesus. So it matters how you live. Not to merit yourself for salvation, but as a natural consequence of coming under the rule of Jesus. I used to say to people, it's like becoming a chef. What's one of the signs that you're a chef? You cook. If you never cooked, not too sure you're a chef, (laughs) right? In fact, that's what the whole letter of 1 John is about. The apostle John was challenged. John, we're confused about what it means to be a Christian. Could you tell us? So he wrote a letter. These are seven signs that you're a Jesus follower. Not one of them was just believe. He says, you know if you're a Jesus follower, when you end up doing these seven things because you are putting your life under his rule and reign. And therefore, you need to examine your life. Am I giving in to this world around me thinking it doesn't matter? Or have I truly converted to following Jesus? And therefore, oh my God, I I gotta walk this road as a minority and walk it with joy Because the ways of Jesus lead to life and not to death. Remember that Jesus is your true north. Remember, it matters how you live. This is what we bought into following Jesus. And then, thirdly, remind yourself of your purpose. As a Jesus follower, I just want to say congratulations. Because God has chose you to move from wherever you've lived up until now to come into the heart of secularism, progressive, anti-Jesus living. Congratulations. <laughs> because that's the point of being a Christian. It is As we follow Jesus who came into the world to bring light into the world, To go where the darkness is, to go where people are dying in depression, anxiety, relationship trauma, where they're struggling with their loss of meaning and purpose in life, where they just don't know how to fit life all together. They may look like they have it all together on the outside, but they're crumbling on the inside. And God is looking at this city and going, it's dark in many ways. I need some light. So he picked Jim, Sue, Sharon, Phil. I need you to move to LA and bring the light to these people to show them the beauty of Jesus, the way of life, that leads to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And by the way, the last thing you should do is conform. Because they need you not to conform. That's the whole point. That is our mission. Jesus said it brilliantly, better than any of us. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? You are the light of the world. You don't hide your lamp under a bushel. So you are to be the light to the city around you. I get so excited when God says, I've got a mission for you. I've got a purpose for you. To live out the ways of Jesus when no one else is living them out. So that you can show this is the way to abundance. This is the way to love and peace and joy. This is the way, this is the way God designed it to be. I know you're all doing that stuff thinking that's gonna reap amazing rewards, but just wait a couple of years and I'm still here and guess what, it won't work. To be the beacon of Jesus in our city. You see, that is the role of each and every one of us, to be an alternative to the city around us. Ted Chen leads our diversity walking tours. We love the diversity of our city. And every now and again, we go to a part of the town which is rich in a different culture. And so recently, Ted led a tour of Little Tokyo up on Sawtelle. It was an amazing tour. I wasn't able to go, but I heard about it. I saw pictures as they're walking around. They're in LA, but they kind of feel like they're in Tokyo. They're going around, they're eating ramen and bento boxes, they're smelling all the tastes and smells of a different land, a different country. But it's confusing, because it's like, oh, there's the Hollywood sign, but I kind of feel like I'm in Japan. It's like this little experience of another world. The church, we together, are not little Tokyo, but little heaven living together, following the ways of Jesus, not giving in to the world around us, loving the world around us, but saying, come, 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 taste and see that the Lord is good. Look, our relationships are fueled by grace and mercy, not revenge and bitterness. Look, we carry each other's burdens. Look, we don't chop out of commitment when it goes tough, but we dig in for health. Look. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is our mission in our city. That's our calling in our city. John Mark Homer writes in his book, Live No Lies, he says, there's a tremendous opportunity in our cultural moment for the church to come back to her roots as a counterculture. And while I hope I don't end up crucified in 50 years in some kind of Huxleyan secular progressive dystopia. All right, John Mark. (laughs) He said, I've already made peace with the obvious reality. I will never fully fit in. I will never be cool. I will never be liked or well-respected or admired by culture. But that's okay. The word church itself in Greek means those who are called out. It's not a community of comfort or conforming, but of calling. This is the joy of being called to our city. This is why we need to stick together as a community. We can't do this alone. It's why we stand together, encourage each other, lift each other up, keep the furnace hot, showcase that life with Jesus is a better way and resist the temptation to give in to the emptiness of the world around us. We love the world. We don't oppose them. We don't shake our fists at them. We simply love them but go, there's a better way. His name is Jesus. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.